It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's go to Ira Jersey. Uh, he covers uh, all the interest rate stuff for uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. Ira, you know me. I-, I try to stay away from that whole interest rate thing, the whole yield curve discussion. You don't want me anywhere near that. But I guess what I'm hearing today and over the last couple of days is higher for longer for U.S. interest rates. Is that what the market's telling you? Well, it's not It's not so much the higher, it's more the stay high for longer. Okay. So the, the story really that, uh, that we've been pricing the last couple of days, and we're talking about very short term, is um, is the idea that the Federal Reserve is not going to be cutting interest rates, you know, maybe even into the second half of next year. Um, so although we, you know, we're still pricing for some probability of a of a hike later this year, the more important thing is that we're starting to price out cuts. And pricing out cuts is, you know, in my opinion, that's what the Fed is really needed to try to uh, try to convince the market of for a long time, because it, the fact that you were pricing in cuts just means that the market was was that and if you look at equities or credit markets um, have just gotten easier and financial conditions have eased because people thought that the Fed was going to be early in cutting rates and if they're not going to cut rates uh, early then that's just as good as as hiking isn't it I mean we're getting close to great financial crisis levels on rates how high did we go um, back then on the 10 year on the 30 year IR because that was like the sky is falling and it doesn't feel like that at all right now. Well, if, if you're talking about the financial crisis in 2007, eight, you know, when, when we go back to the early 2000s, we're basically back to those levels on on uh, a lot of the curve. Um, you know, after uh, 2007, you know, you, this is the first time we've seen rates basically in the last 15 years anywhere close to these kinds of uh, uh, of levels, particularly in the front end of the curve. Um, it's it's very but, but possible. Isn't that crazy, Ira? Yeah. Like 2007, 2008, we barely got above 5% on the 10-year, right? And that was when, like, if the TARP vote didn't pass, <laughs> the, the United States was going to fail as a country. Like, how come we're at that level now? Well, mainly because we're in much different inflationary dynamics now than we were back then, right? So we have to have a monetary policy that's ultimately going to be more restrictive than it was back during the financial crisis. So, you know, during the financial crisis, you had easing of monetary policy. You had the Federal Reserve, remember, you had the TARP vote, and then very soon thereafter, they started their quantitative easing program, and where they started to buy a lot of treasuries, started to buy a lot of mortgages. Now that's reversed. Right. So so they started to do that. Remember, in 2018, 2019, the economy started to slow. Then you had the pandemic and that all 
uh, caused uh, caused obviously the the Federal Reserve to be even easier and and way easier even than it was during the financial crisis. So, um, so so I think it's a it's reactive right now that we're going to see higher rates because of the strength of the economy, because of the monetary policy actions by the Fed, and importantly, and I think this is definitely can't be underappreciated. And and if you go back to when the Treasury Department at the beginning of the month came out and said, we're going to issue a trillion dollars of debt this quarter. So just the July through September quarter, um, you know, that was eye popping to a lot of people because it was $200 billion more than than we thought. And and I think consensus was probably somewhere near there, too. Um, so so you, you have supply dynamics on top of a reasonably strong economy and monetary policy that's going to stay very, uh, you know, very tight for a while. All of those things are going to mean that rates are going to be, uh, you know, stuck probably at this these higher levels, at least for, um, you know, for a few quarters, if, if not even a year. It's no good. I'm looking to refinance the mortgage, Ira. You're not helping me out <laughs> whatsoever. All right. I, no, and, not at all. Yeah. No, no. Thank you very much again. Uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Matt and I will not be there, but our good friends at Bloomberg Surveillance will be there. And why? I mean, what's the point of well, even they're, going? They're sending. Well, they're gonna. They're sending the A team. So Ira, question, does it matter? Yeah, does it matter, Ira? I, I doubt that that Jay Powell is going to say anything too, uh, you know, too groundbreaking, really, because uh, w with press conferences at every single FOMC meeting. He only uh, you know, spoke to us at, in late July. So it's hard to imagine that even though the data has been a little bit better, maybe than expectations, um, it, it hasn't been strong enough for, you know, for the Fed to completely change their view. Um, but but there will be nuance, I think, that we'll be listening for. So things like if if Jay Powell starts talking about the medium term and about some of the structural shifts uh, in the uh, in the global economy with wages and with supply chains and the like, um, you know, we might be able to at least, you know, glean some information from there. Will it be massively market moving? I doubt it. Um, I, I, but at the same time, liquidity has been pretty poor, which is one of the reasons you've seen such big moves. So if he does happen to say something that's a little bit unexpected, you could see a pop here and there in, in the market, whether it's, you know, rates, uh, you know, 10 year yields, five basis points lower, or five basis points higher. Real quick, Ira, are you surprised how successful Messi's been in Miami so far? Uh, not really. You know, major league soccer teams have uh, have salary caps and they tend to spend their money more on attacking talent than they do on defenders. So Messi's just, you know, tearing up a lot of the defenses in major league soccer. It's fun to watch. I'll tell He's you. coming to New York, right? I know. And uh, John Farrow was just saying, I was listening to him on surveillance, a ticket that usually goes for 75 or 100 bucks in New York for the New York Red, Red Bulls when Miami comes in, 1000 bucks. Dude, he told me uh, that the D.C. game tickets start at $12. Yeah, but I mean, once Messi and and when Messi comes, tickets start at four ninety six. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's a delta. That's a delta. Ira Jersey, thanks so much for joining us. Ira Jersey, chief U.S. interest rate strategist uh, and soccer strategist as well. Soccer owner, he's a mogul in the world of soccer. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I'm so glad I'm not like, like I'm managing a cyclical business. I put up a really good quarter. I sell a lot of tractors. The farmer's in good shape, yet my stock's down 4% because these darn analysts and investors are looking 6, 12, 18 months down the road and saying, hey, it can't get any better than it is right now. Uh, somebody has to live this on a daily basis uh, is Brooke Sutherland. She covers all the industrial stuff, including gear for Bloomberg. Are you opinion or back to news? I don't know. Where are you these Still days? Opinion. Still in Bloomberg opinion. Uh, Full Brooke of opinions. Jo- yeah. Uh, Brooke joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. So, Brooke, what did you take of the, the deer earnings? How's the American farmer doing these days? You know, I think they had been doing pretty well, you know, on the back of rising crop prices. And that really provided an opportunity to go out and replace uh, farm equipment because we had a very long period where, you know, tractors were getting up there in terms of duration and people were holding off on purchases. And, of course, we've seen the other end of that. But now, you know, we're starting to see some pressure on crop prices um, just with some of the harvesting patterns that we've seen. But I think, you know, sort of the, the crux of the issues, if you look at Deer's numbers, they're very good. But it's not volumes that's really driving everything here. It's price. And they have a ton of pricing power because they are such a dominant provider of tractors. um, And they also really have invested in the technology curve in terms of making their machines more efficient, more productive for those farmers. And that has really helped them get pricing power. But I think you have to wonder, at what point have we reached sort of the, the peak of pushing through these price increases? We start to lap tougher comparisons. Has the farmer maybe had enough in terms of yep. those price increases? And I think that's why you're seeing some of the right. pressure on the stairs today. But in the stock, I, yeah, it's come down substantially, but they're still doing really well. I look at uh, comp chart, uh, COMP on the Bloomberg, it automatically defaults to a five-year period, and they have more than tripled over the past five years, um, you know, compared to an S&P that's up 66%, the industrials index on the S&P is up 52%. So they're a huge outperformer, right? Who are their biggest competitors? Like, uh, who else has the name, brand recognition, uh, and quality of a John Deere? I mean, not really anybody. And I think yeah. that's why they have so much pricing power. I mean, you do have competitors like CNH um, is one that people look Mahindra, at. Mahindra, I know, is another tractor maker that people like. Lamborghini uh, actually makes trackers. No, tractors. Not the car company that's owned by uh, Volkswagen. But, of course, yeah, Lamborghini started out as a tractor maker. That's right. I remember seeing That's what that. Ferruccio Lamborghini did. Um, before and he, said he could make a better clutch. Yeah, that's right. He got in a fight with Enzo Ferrari about the clutch, and he and he shifted businesses. Um, but, but CNH has also made some comments about you know we might be reaching sort of the limits of pricing increases with that farmer population. But and you know to your point, we've seen that kind of really aggressive share climb. This is not the first time we've wondered if this is as good as it gets for deer um, because it has been a very good and somewhat prolonged ag uh, production cycle here. But, you know, at at a certain point, you can't go up forever. If I'm a farmer in Iowa, how long do I own my deer tractor before I replace it usually? I think it depends. I mean, again, on sort of what the market dynamics are and and when it is a good time to spend on new equipment. And then, like I said, you know, they're also investing in in better technology that can really help on the productivity front, especially for farmers that are suffering with labor shortages um, to help get around some of that. And I think that all sort of weighs on the decision making process. Uh, Labor was an issue for deer um, and they solved that pretty quickly. I remember is that an issue again, or, or or have they dealt with it for the long term and others have to now deal with that same issue? 
Well, I mean, the thing with these union negotiations is they kind of come back around. Every well, that's why I'm years, wondering because we're uh, seeing it in automotive, right? right? The UAW uh, right now is trying to negotiate a huge contract with GM and Ford, and uh, and you also see, you know, pilots and in airlines, the unions are um, getting agitated again. So, has Deer though? Is that sort sort of one uh, tailwind that they've already dealt with this? I think that. To your point about how well Deer has been doing, I think that's one reason why the unions feel so empowered, is that that was a pretty significant wage increase when they struck that deal. And then you just look at how successful Deer has been and how much it has been able to increase prices for its customers and ramp up profits, that it could it was in a great position to shoulder that extra wage cost for those employees. Um, UPS is obviously talking about trying to do the same thing down the road. They sounded very confident on their earnings call about being able to offset those higher wage costs with productivity improvements, um, investing in automation, things like that. And so I think that's what's really empowering the unions is they're saying, look, you're really raking it in and we want yeah, our fair share sure. of that. If I'm a farmer in Iowa, again, I'm going back there and I want to invest in a big tractor. Does Deer give me financing or where do I, how does that work? They do have a financing arm, yes. Okay. Because um, that guy, I mean, like GE, for example, that got to be such a huge part of their business. It's not like that for Deer? Well, GE's now out of that. That's right. <laughs> that, that, mostly, that, it, exactly. didn't, it didn't work that well it didn't for work them. Out. Well, it worked out well to the They went maybe crisis. too far exactly. in too many different directions <laughs> at the same time. But I do um, wonder, though, I mean, is it... Uh, is it a bonus to have your own in-house financing arm when rates rise like this? Because you can find ways to maybe give customers a better deal than they're going to get from their local bank. That was always the argument. I mean, yeah. that's why GE got into that business in the first place and, you know, why some of these other companies have these financing arms. Um, but it, yeah, it'll certainly be interesting to see how that plays out um, as we get further into this interest All right. rate cycle. We've, we've got you in studio, so we're going to just play around here, rip up the script, as Tom Keen would say. U.S. Steel, A, I didn't even think it was still in existence as a company until the takeover stuff happened. Uh, where are we with that story here? It's it's heating up. It's the center really? of a bidding war. It's one of the oldest um, American companies. used yeah. to be one of the biggest, and now it increasingly looks like it is going to be bought we'll be by bigger somebody. Than US Steel. Um, but they need they, so here's another place where unions have real strength, right? Is it the case that the union has to support the bid in order for um, U.S. Steel to be able to accept it? What U.S. Steel has said is that the union does not have a veto over uh, a takeover offer, but they do have the ability to mount a counter offer. Um, and they have said this morning that they are going to transfer that right uh, to a counter offer to Cleveland Cliffs. But I don't know that, um, you know, there's a lot of aggressive rhetoric out there, and I don't know that we should assume that U.S. Steel necessarily doesn't want to sell to Cleveland Cliffs or some sort of bias against that. Sort of what they said is that they wanted Cleveland Cliffs to agree to an NDA um, to do a due diligence process, and Cleveland Cliffs wouldn't do that until they agreed to the economic terms up front, which is somewhat unusual. Um, and I, I think there's just a lot more of this process to play out, and I also don't think we know who all of the parties are yet. So when U.S. Steel announced its strategic review, they said they'd had multiple offers for all and also parts of the company, and I think there might be more players to come out of the woodwork here. And, and I think there's just a long way to go with this takeover story. All right. I got a question on a different issue, but you've been writing about it. So when I moved to Berlin in 2016, um, I had just bought myself a Porsche 911 Carrera S here. Yes. And I didn't course. want to lose it. So I paid the four and a half thousand dollars that I think it costs for me to get, um, you know, half a uh, 
half a trailer on a freighter ship and shipped it over to Germany, and it was great. I got to drive it on the Autobahn. I absolutely loved it. It was the perfect car for Germany. But when I moved back to New York at the end of 2021, and I went to call the same shipper to ask how much it would be, they quoted me more than $20,000, approaching $25,000. So the price had essentially gone up 5x, and I had to sell my beloved Carrera. It was... I'm still a little bit heartbroken, although it helped me to finance my uh, current home. Um, are those prices coming back down to earth? Have, have we come back to normal now in terms of uh, freight shipping? They have come back down. I would say you maybe unfortunately moved at the wrong time. If you'd moved in the spring of 2023, you might have had a better Tell my former uh, rate quoted that. Yeah. on that. But um, yes, so it is. we did see shipping prices really come crashing back down to earth as we sort of had that pivot away from good spending um, back towards services. But now... We're starting to see signs of life again um, in the freight market. The um, Drury, the WCI freight index has increased for six straight weeks. That's the longest positive stretch since January 2022. Um, and so, and you know, we're also seeing maybe some progress in the trucking market where we might be hitting a bottom and starting to find our way, you know, toward a point of stabilization because it has been really rough for that freight sector. I mean, I know there's a lot of debate about whether the broader economy is in a recession, but the freight sector has been there and it's been tough out there. And we're starting to see sort of a light at the end of the tunnel. Well, I mean, you can go over to like by the port of Newark over there, like by Newark Airport, they got the containers stacked like 20 high. Yeah. Go get one of those. And I only needed half for my car because the containers, I think, are 40 feet long and I only needed 20 feet. But I just couldn't justify paying 25 grand, and I wouldn't have been able to afford my house if I hadn't sold the 911. So that's so, probably a good thing for a In a, a sense, I'm family. living in a Porsche <laughs> in, in, in Westchester. Porsche. All right, Brooks Sutherland, she covers all the industrial stuff for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's talk tech talk here. Uh, the tech stocks have been, uh, particularly the top you know, five to seven names, have really been leading this market this year as people are in search for growth. And what are they doing? They're generating a ton of cash, which raises the question, what are these tech companies doing with their cash? Let's bring in Angelo Zeno. He's a senior industry analyst at CFRA uh, Research. Hey, Angelo, again, a lot of these tech companies you know, just putting up gobs and gobs of cash, like Alphabet, you know, $118 billion cash pile. What are these companies doing with their cash? And what do you think they should be doing with their cash? Yeah, so for the most part, most of these, you know, mega cap tech names are really leveraging the, the cash towards buybacks. And it's what they've been doing for years at this point in time. Clearly, Apple kind of, um, you know, the poster boy child in that area, buying back announcing a $90 billion buyback earlier this year on top of the $90 billion they did last year. So th that's really where most of the cash is going. Uh, Alphabet did the same thing, announcing a $70 billion buyback this year on top of the $70 billion they announced last year. So that's where the cash is going. A big reason for that is they really can't do anything else with it in the sense that um, the M&A market for a lot of these large cap companies are essentially closed outside of the fact that we are 
you know, likely going to see an improved deal of that that Microsoft Activision transaction out there. So um, we expect them to continue to utilize most of the cash towards buybacks going forward. And we actually think that's the right move here. And, and a big reason for that is it will support earnings growth. We do expect free cash flow to continue to grow here over the next five to 10 years incrementally. And um, that'll continue to support a higher share price in our view. All right, so here's my pet peeve for the big tech names. I think they should be like Apple, for example. They should have a two and a half to three and a half percent dividend yield, and they don't. Why, <laughs> why is that? I think there's a perception out there where if you make a move like that, um, you know, it almost tells you that the, maybe the growth trajectory of the company isn't going to be as favorable as, as maybe they believe that it, it should be. Um, and, you know, I think they do want to have uh, cash out there accessible in case they were able to go out there and make a, a, a big splash out there in the market, get somewhat accretive on the M&A side of things. Um, you know, clearly the regulatory environment does change over time. And um, I think they, they want to just have that, that cash available out there. And when you kind of look at what specifically Apple, right, since 2012, they essentially bought back or reduced their share count by more than 40 percent. That's absolutely remarkable because many of these companies out there that do have buybacks, they're essentially washing out, um, you know, the, the, they're essentially kind of just offsetting, um, you know, di share dilution um, with those buybacks. Apple is actually reducing, reducing their share count and they will, will continue to do so over the next decade. So we think um, the growth trajectory for Apple continues to be very attractive. And, you know, when you look at a company like a Apple specifically, we think that is a, a stock that continues to be under-owned in many respects because there are a lot of fund managers out there that can't own 7% of a stock like Apple. So um, it's really interesting that you continue to kind of reduce the share count while also having kind of this under-owned asset out there. So um, we think it's we continue to think it's the right move and um, we think Apple continues to view their stock as an attractive opportunity um, from a valuation perspective. I mean, I... I I hear this, Angelo, from other um, analysts as well, that, you know, they don't want to send the wrong sign to the markets that they're not a growth company. But Apple should set the tone. You know, they, they don't you know, the markets have to send a sign to Apple, not the other way around. Uh, they 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 always have a hundred or two hundred billion dollars in cash and cash equivalents. Um, I wonder what else they're going to do with the money. I mean, why don't they make a big acquisition? I look at the, I look at the money they have, right? Uh, I guess last fiscal year it was 169 billion dollars, and then I look at uh, a Disney market cap 157. Why don't they just use it? <laughs> no, I think that's a fair point. I think a big reason they don't do it. I mean, maybe not as much in Apple's case, but in others, I, I think there you know I think there would be too much kind of backlash from a regulatory perspective to allow a deal like that to take place. To be honest with you. Um, but, you know, I, I think Apple does want to kind of have that cash available just in case they want to make a move like that. But at the end of the day, listen, it's not in their DNA, right? They've never made an acquisition north of $3 billion. We know that. And when you kind of look ahead and we look at their pipeline, uh, we continue to view this is a company that could, you know, longer term um, continue to grow the EPS at a 10% plus clip. And those buybacks in terms of, you know, essentially buying back 3% of their shares to continue to help that EPS growth trajectory um, will support that 10% plus EPS clip. So um, again, we think it's the right move um, that they, that cash, that net cash balance has been dwindling over the last couple of years. 
um, to maybe to your point where they, they don't they acknowledge that they don't need as much cash out there. But in the same respect, I mean, listen, I mean, it's it's a great problem to have, right? Yeah. If you're Apple, if you're, if you're Alphabet or anybody, any of these other mega cap tech firms out there. All right, Angela, aside from, from Apple, what else do you like in your coverage area? Yeah, I mean, listen, I we, we do continue to like a lot of the chip names out there, um, you know, specifically kind of the ongoing AI shift out there towards generative AI. We think you're still in the early innings there. And NVIDIA, of course, is a name that has, you know, essentially tripled this year and essentially nearly quadrupled off its lows but that being said um we do think that you know over the next kind of three to four years you're going to see this shift this titanic shift in in the form of how computing um and networking chips out there are, are going to kind of be um valued and, and the amount of demand you're going to see kind of from this generative ai um shift and be, that being said we continue to like uh nvidia as well as Broadcom, which have been two of the big winners out there. On top of that, Marvell, as well as uh, AMD, we think are going to be big winners in the coming years. Um, on top of kind of, you know, some of our, our favorite names on the mega cap tech names. I tell you what, uh, Angela, NVIDIA, I guess they report after the close on Wednesday. Man, they better put up a big print because given what their stock has done on, on the back of that true uh, big raise they had last quarter That's exciting what's the risk in that name do you think i mean man i can't think of a company who's got more expectations built into their stock short term than nvidia yeah and to be honest with you it, it it's going to be tough for them to kind of exceed, exceed some of those expectations out there i mean at this point in time you kind of look at what they did in terms of their last quarterly results essentially kind of doubled the the, the expectation on the data center side of things and we do think that you know the, they've got a good problem out there in the sense that their their chips are um, supply constrained out there. When you kind of look at the valuation, at least relative to historical levels, it's actually not de that demanding. So we think there's very little downside potential, at least in terms of where the consensus estimates are. And there is upside potential. But that said, um, you know the valuation is always kind of the question mark with Nvidia here. We think where investors continue to underestimate the Nvidia story is really kind of the fact that this is more of a total solutions company rather than a, um, a semiconductor right. company. So the, the, you know, the capabilities and the upside potential on the software side of, th side of things, if they talk that up on this earnings call, that's where the yep. upside potential we think is for the stock. All right, Angelo, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting a couple minutes of your time. Uh, Angelo Zeno, he's a senior industry analyst at CFRA Research. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team, Cantor Live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Bitcoin off 5.6% as Denise was just reporting, 26,090. People are heading for the exits here. I'm going to check in with uh, the king of South Beach, South Beach, Mike McClone, senior macro strategist with Bloomberg Intelligence. Mike, what's happening out there with uh, Bitcoin? 
you always bring me on and I start laughing from those South Beach connotations. So I appreciate <laughs> that. I appreciate that, Paul. Um, Bitcoin is, I think, resuming a bear market. And I look at it, and the headline I put out today is, it pair, to me, it appears similar to the U.S. stock market in 1930 oh. when it, it, um, it rolled over and, and then it kept going over, down after it bounced. And the key thing about it is, let's just look at Bitcoin right before this COVID, right before the biggest pump in liquidity in history. It was around 10,000. And still right now it's around 26. So I think there's risk it can head that way. It's, it's the leading indicator. It's one of the most world's speculative digital assets, most significant. But I think that leading indicator is what to me is important for the rest of the market, like the stock market. The key to me headwind is just look at that U.S. government two note. You can purchase a two note around 5%, lock up almost 10% in two years. First time you've been able to do that since about 2007. I look at it, every rational person in the, in the planet who's got money and is invested is looking at that and saying, thank you, I'll do that. And I think that's what's happening with all risk assets and it's just getting started. Is there a concern that, uh, you know, Elon Musk has sold a ton of Bitcoin? Didn't I read that somewhere? <laughs> yeah, I thought he sold already. I hear SpaceX today, but this is a problem, I think, with Bitcoin. You're kind of, I think in this case, some of these leverage longs that brought right when the BlackRock announced that they were going to um, apply for an ETF, it hasn't been approved. Um, the market rallied from about 25000 to just above thirty. You've got a lot of leverage longs in there. I think we're stopping those people out and it's they're getting along for the wrong reason with the hopium that you're going to get an etf oh, yeah. to me it's the fundamentals yeah why well, it's a word i learned from bitcoin people and crypto people it's that hopium <laughs> and so now it's a question of what stops this downward trajectory so one thing i pointed out they published today if you just look at a hundred week moving average of bitcoin it's rolled over and it's trending downward for the highest velocity ever now bitcoin's only been around about 14 years and then i think to myself what stops just normal reversion of the best performing asset ever and number one thing is the Fed is still tightening. The Fed is still telling you, it's still taking liquidity away. And here's a highly speculative asset that went up a lot. I still think that's the risk it continues to revert. Mike, this sounds uh, for Bitcoin, from what I'm hearing from you, uh, more of a technical kind of thing. Do, we, do I look at grad, uh, charts? Do I see where a technical bottom is here? Do I start doing that kind of thing? Well, I view it as the opposite. I was just on a call, um, and they're pointing all the technicals. People trade it too much. I view it as number one headline is the Fed is still tightening. And then you try to put it into things that we see as humans. We can't really, you know, can see the tightening, can feel, but you can watch the price. And I just point out trends down, Fed's tightening, use the discipline of a good investor respect the trend. So as far as where it can go, I think people are looking at 25,000 as the first level. And then of course, look to 20,000. I mentioned a level I think it could go back to in a normal recessionary environment, which is the view of Anna Wong, our chief economist, we should be heading towards a recession, which is the indication from the inverted yield curve. Um, and why not go back to 10,000? That's Whoa. where it was before the Fed. Well, that's where, the, where it was hovering around 10,000, right before this massive pump in liquidity with the COVID. Now that liquidity is going away to breakneck pace. Bottom line is all the lessons of history in assets that pump on liquidity, and when that liquidity goes away, you know that lessons are that assets usually revert. It's a question of how far. Mm. Uh, where do you expect to see Bitcoin in, in, in the coming years? I mean, is it possible that we drop back down to 16,000 or even test those limits again? 
Yeah, so I think it's it has a bottom around 15, and most people look at that as, oh, I'm going to be buying here and getting near there, and that is the risk I see. Is the bottom line for me, Matt, is this is part of the macro. It's just a good indication that I think we're heading into more significant bear market. If you look at the stock market. It typically doesn't bottom until about two years after the Fed starts easing. We haven't done that. They're still tightening. And to me, this is part of just this is the leading indicator. So I see, I don't know how long it takes, but like I said, I compared it to the stock market in 1930, and right now it's a bear market. It's heading lower, and the Fed's still tightening. So I don't even see light at the end of the tunnel for risk assets to bottom, and Bitcoin is just the best leading indicator. All right. So aside from Bitcoin, what's the, you know, if I go to BI commodity, what are some of the top two or three things you guys are working on? Well, I'm still watching crude oil. Now, crude oil is hovering about unchanged in the year. Obviously, I'm still bearish crude oil. And a normal trajectory after the pump last year is you typically head towards two cheap levels. Two cheap levels in crude oil, not at 80. It's around 40 or 50. And then you look at the macro of it. China is clearly in decline. And what stops this downward revision and economic outlook for China. I don't see it. Now, we should expect stimulus from there, but they just upset their biggest export customers, Europe and the U.S., with this war. And it's not really China anymore. It's one leader, President Xi. So I think you're seeing a situation in China similar to peak Soviet Union and peak Japan in, in the late 80s, early 90s. So there's a the demand side. And great, and that's still going that way. And you look at copper. Copper is pointing that way. Copper's tilting lower. It's right around three dollars and 70 cents a pound its average price for last year 20 years is three dollars a pound now that shows deflationary forces over overall and i don't see what stops it from going that level you have to see a major pickup in china you have to see major weakness in u.s dollar and fed easing typically they're all not they're all going the wrong way at the moment so i look at this as the early days of a bear market and then you have to ask yourself is just what happens to all these assets if, if the U.S. stock market rolls over for a normal recession and typically it doesn't bottom until we're well into an easing cycle? We're still tightening. So when you're out at the clubbing South Beach, you don't <laughs> talk commodities, do you, Mike? Please tell me you got a better game than that. Well, I try to avoid the subject, but I have to admit I've been a warning to most people. I, and I, people, I, I just point out, studying history, I've been doing a lot of that late, lately, is I think we're heading towards the biggest reset of our lifetimes. Now, you just look at oh, property values in Florida. There is no history of major fluctuations in property values in Florida. It looks like they're just starting to roll over when I'm hearing. And it, it's the, the bottom line is we're still taking away the punch bowl. Um, and that is what I'm really worried about. It's a classic example of a look at PPI. The producer price index went from 18 to minus three. That's finished goods. That's the biggest correction since 1948. So pretty significant deflationary forces. And then you look at the Fed funds at what five and a quarter. It's well above in CPI, well above PPI. It's clearly contractory. And um, we're just early days. So I look at this as this is just a normal cycle. And the normal cycle is we're very elevated in risk assets, and Bitcoin is the good leading indicator, which crude oil around 40, copper lower, and, you know, I just be lucky. lucky. I mean, the pro- here's the here's lose-lose. Every time the stock market's gone up, it's increased rate height expectations. Right. I don't think the Fed's going to ease until the stock market tells them to by going down. All right. Um, yeah, good stuff. I, I, yeah, and I want to get you back on a little bit later, Mike, if we can, to talk about what's going on with the ags, because I think it's – 
bigger than people realize. Certainly bigger than we uh, than we give it time for. And, he, and he, he knows that stuff. I know. Yeah. All right. Uh, that's why he's the man for that. You're listening to the tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. You know, Matt, when we talk about the economy, oftentimes folks will say, you know, I'm thinking about a hard landing. I'm thinking about a soft landing. And then we've recently heard this phrase, no landing. And I think we need to talk to a licensed pilot because I don't think that's even possible. Fortunate for us, our next guest is a licensed pilot, Jamie Patton. She's co-head of Global Rates at TCW. So, Jamie, got a lot of smart people there at TCW out in Los Angeles. What kind of economic landing are you guys calling for? Well, thank you for bringing up the no landing scenario analogy, which is my least favorite analogy huh. of all time. <laughs> mostly because it defies the laws of physics. What goes up must come down, but also just being a pilot, airplanes run on gas. And even if everything goes perfectly and you really don't want to land, you're going to run out of gas. So I hate that analogy, <laughs> but I do love flying analogies. And I think that they're perfect for monetary policy hiking cycles, especially this one. Um, at TCW, we are expecting a hard landing oh, um, specifically the analogy that I like the most is a soft field landing, which um, to give you a little bit of background, not to talk about flying too much. Let's but do it. <laughs> soft field landings are notoriously dangerous. Pilots never totally know what hazards lurk under the soft under the surface of a soft field landing. Oh, yeah. So a soft field landing is off airport. It could be grass, gravel, sand, snow. The Hudson River. And, <laughs> exactly. So there could be wildlife wandering around. There's barbed wire fences, difficult to see from the air. A regional banking crisis might be brewing under the surface of a robust economy. And as we're coming in for this landing, we are not expecting it to be soft for a lot of reasons that I can get into. But we also see so many hazards and just the chances that the economy has a soft landing with a hiking cycle that's been the most aggressive in 40 years, we just find to be very unlikely. You know, I heard a great analogy uh, this morning on surveillance from Laura Rame. She said that um, the economy is like an 18-wheeler. And before the great financial crisis, when a lot of people still had fixed-rate mortgages or floating-rate mortgages, sorry, floating-rate mortgages, uh, the Fed could pull on the brake lever and that would slow down like 10 wheels. So it could bring, you know, the economy to a stop relatively quickly. But now that everyone has shifted to fixed-rate mortgages, um, the brake lever only affects like three or four wheels and it's much harder to slow this truck down. Does that make more sense? Absolutely. So the way that we talk about this is the interest rate sensitivity of the U.S. economy. And specifically, we've heard a lot of Fed speakers talk about this recently in the form of monetary policy lags. So we know they're long. We know they're variable. We know it takes time for an adjustment in monetary policy, such as the Fed hiking rates, to feed its way through the macro economy. But we don't know how long. And recently, these Fed speakers, especially Waller last month, has said the lag should be shorter now because we have forward guidance that feeds into rates markets instantly and the size of the shock will make the, the lag shorter. We very much disagree with this. We think that lags are likely to be longer today, not just the, the mortgage argument is a really good one. It's an $8 trillion agency MBS market and less than 1% now is adjustable rate. Prior to the global financial crisis, it was 12 to 20 times that. 
There are also other reasons that make our economy today less rate sensitive. One is the Fed's $8 trillion dollar balance sheet cushioning the blow to financial markets. It was $1 trillion prior to the global financial crisis. And also some psychological impacts where the economy really has changed in some ways post-COVID. One thing that we talk about here is labor hoarding. If a company was had really struggled to get labor during COVID, prior to COVID, they're also really hesitant to lay off that labor or reduce that labor today. And it's harder to see that in economic data, but one thing you could look at is something like overtime hours, specifically in manufacturing. It's the lowest we've ever seen outside of recessionary times. So what does that tell us? Well, we don't really need this labor, but we're gonna keep it around. So maybe we just have them working less and less. And, the, and then you might ask, well, why does that all matter? Not just because we need to know when these interest rate hikes are going to impact the economy, but if the Fed thinks that the interest rate impacts are going to impact the economy sooner, and we think that's not true, that means the Fed is very likely to keep rates too high for too long, over tighten, and that would raise the risk of a larger than expected decline in growth and eventually inflation. It supports our long duration position. I also think that's why this no landing scenario gets spread around where people are just expecting the lag to be short. It's actually long. They think everything is great, but we see it coming, crashing down pretty hard just in Oof. more like a year instead of three months. <laughs> man, you guys are brutal out there in LA. I mean, I know you got writer strikes and actor strikes, but man, that's a dour outlook. Not so, just brutal, a big deal, a, big a massive deal. attraction. If you're doing a tour around the country, you stop at TCW? Oh, that's, you, you build around TCW and Capital Group and everything else falls into place. All right, so are we gonna get any rate cuts next year, Jamie? We do think the Fed will cut rates next year. The market has the Fed cutting rates about halfway through the year. The Fed itself has has the Fed cutting rates about 100 basis points next year. We agree. Um, we think that the Fed will wait to cut rates until they are very confident that inflation is heading back down towards their 2% target. And even though they're probably really happy with the progress they've seen in the June and July inflation prints, they still have a ways to go. The last two prints for consumer prices, CPI was 3% and 3.2%. That's one third of what inflation was last summer and one half of what it was even at the beginning of the year, but it still has a ways to go. Mm -hmm. The Fed's own forecast of core PCE is still 3.9% at the end of the year. So that's really far above yep. their 2% target still. All right, Jamie Patton, that was excellent stuff. We're gonna have you back, whether you like it or not. Jamie Patton, co-head of Global Rates at TCW. Um, not a soft landing kind of person, definitely not a no landing kind of person, kind of suggesting there's a harder landing on the horizon. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's talk gaming. Way of saying the casino business, which I love. Charles Gillespie, CEO of gambling.com, joins us. Charles, thanks so much for joining us here. Uh, gambling.com, tell us about this company. What are you guys up to? Thanks, guys. Great to be here. Uh, so, gambling.com group uh, publishes essentially online comparison shopping websites for the global online gambling industry. So, you know, if you're going to go to Paris, for example, to, and you need to book a hotel, you're probably going to go to 
hotels.com or Expedia or something like that. Get all the information there in one place and then book your hotel. Uh, we essentially do the same thing, but for online gambling. So if you want to bet on sports and you're in New York or New Jersey or one of the other 25 states where you can bet on sports legally in the United States, you come to gambling.com or one of our 50 other websites. We also have bookies.com, casinos.com. Uh, we also own rotowire.com. And we'll uh, give you all that information, help you find a you know the best sports book or online casino for Whatever your needs are. Maybe are you, are you comparing really the want. odds? Who's going to offer me the best odds? Or what, are you, what are you actually measuring? We do that. Yeah. So bookies.com has got odds comparison and, uh, and tons of data about sports. But a lot of users, you know, it, they don't even need that level of information. They just want to know, okay, in, I don't know, Pennsylvania, what sports books are even available? Which okay. ones are legal? And, uh, you know, of the ones that are legal, well, which ones have the best signup offers, which ones have the best customer service, which ones will pay me quickly if I win. Uh, you know, so in many cases, it's just kind of, frankly, more more basic things that move the needle for, for individual users that, that we supply. But yeah, for the sophisticated users, we've got odds comparison and all kinds of great stuff. Now, Charles, um, this is, it's kind of a controversial business. Obviously, if you're an adult, uh, you should probably be able to make your own decisions about what you do with your money. And if it were illegal, um, uh, you know, everybody would be doing it underground anyway. But did you have any reservations with using such blunt uh, brand names, gambling.com and bookies.com is something that I don't think my mom would want me messing around with? Uh, absolutely not. I mean, you know, to borrow a British saying, you know, they, they do what it says on the tin, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's very clear. It's, it's good branding. Um, I, you know, I, I, obviously I'm an industry guy. I've been doing this for 17 years. So I, you know, I've, I've been drinking the Kool-Aid for a long time, but <laughs> I don't think that the industry is controversial, controversial at all. Uh, you know, when you zoom out and look at it from a, you know, you look at the whole kind of thing in its entirety. What I think is controversial is states that haven't regulated online gambling because right. it's, it's not like online gambling isn't happening in these states. You said it yourself, Matt. You know, the, all these people are playing online regardless. It's just a question of whether they're at the regulated sites or if they're at the Costa Rican and, and Panama-based sites. And you know, you can't help the problem gamblers if they're not within the regulated ecosystem because you don't know anything about them. Uh, you know, so it's 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 clearly a net positive for every jurisdiction that regulates the industry because they get they get so many more tools to actually help people that need help and and that is the real thing that we should all be doing is is trying to do what we can to minimize gambling related harm and and that that obviously starts with a regulated market how important was it uh for the industry charles for espn to really to ink their deal, uh, I think, was it with Penn? I forget, was it with Penn? But just to ink their deal, to really kind of put jump into the deep end of the pool uh, with their deal with Penn Entertainment. Yeah, I, I'm not sure they're in the deep end of the pool. I, I, I'd say they've, uh, they're in the shallow end or okay. the kiddie pool. You know, they're not, they're not actually the ones taking the bets. And what they've done with Penn is they've licensed the ESPN name yep. to Penn. But Penn is the regulated gambling operator with all the licenses that's going to do the the heavy lifting. Um, but it is a very big deal. You know, this, uh, this American sports betting renaissance started in 2018 with the Supreme Court decision. And, you know, ever since that moment, all eyes have been on ESPN. And there's been tons of speculation about 
what they may actually do. Disney's, you know, obviously had a very kind of conservative approach to the whole thing. They don't want to be seen to be in the gambling business. They certainly don't want to have anything to do with online casino. Um, and and it took five years, but they finally done a deal. It's a it's it's a relatively simple deal where they license their brand to Penn, and, and as I said, Penn will operate it. Um, you know, there's there's other chess pieces that got moved around when Penn announced that deal. Uh, you know, they had previously acquired Barstool, uh, yeah. which is you know a, a fascinating media organization, and um, and, and talk about and controversial. I think that, yeah. David yeah, Portnoy you and know, Barstool. There's plenty of things have been said about about Barstool, and I don't want to wade into that conversation. But just from a pure media perspective, I mean, they have incredible engagement, and a lot of the content is highly compelling. You know, it, it is a it is a fascinating business. Um, Agreed. And, yeah. and in the in the end, Penn, you know, I think realized maybe that's not the best fit for a regulated gambling company. You know, now obviously not everybody agrees with everything that, that Portnoy says. And, you know, I think certain gaming regulators in the end were just not totally comfortable. Right. And, and Penn needed to essentially replace that partner and, and that's what they've done. And, and, and Dave Portnoy at the end of this is, has come out looking like an absolute legend yep. having <laughs> sold, sold Barstool for, you know, a, a, an actual yep. proper fortune, and right. then and, 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 and now it. having bought it back for a dollar. Exactly, mean, it's, right. it's 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 the it, it's the stuff. Of it's legend. fun to follow. That that's for sure. Charles Gillespie, thanks so much for joining us. Charles Gillespie is the CEO of Gambling This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Now, uh, I have been covering the automotive industry for a couple of decades, and as a result, I kind of know everybody that works in the industry. So oftentimes these manufacturers will give me cars oh, nice. um, or motorcycles to test drive for a week and figure out, you know, what the product is like, which is, I think, uh, very helpful in my reporting. Um, this week, I'm driving a car from a brand that's very close to my heart. It's an Audi Q8 e-tron. Audi Q8 e-tron, right, which is a little bit confusing, but basically it's their Biggest uh, SUV that's powered solely by batteries. and Oh, nice. I'm looking at it here. Uh, well, we have video of it as well. So if okay, you're cool. listening, you can uh, go to YouTube.com and just type Bloomberg Radio and you'll see this vehicle. Now, close to my heart because the first car I ever bought was an Audi A4 Avant, the station wagon yep, version. Sure. That was not battery powered back in 2000. That was... Uh, 2.5 liter turbo diesel, which I loved so much. Same color, uh, pretty much, and the interior felt the same. Everything kind of felt the same. The only difference is the powertrain. Um, I want to bring in Kyle Stock. He is a senior correspondent for Bloomberg Business Week. He covers the car industry uh, very closely as well. And um, Kyle, first of all, I'm not sure if you've driven this Audi, but if you've driven almost any Audi, the experience is really similar, and I think that's what they're going for. Yeah, and it and it's like very techy luxury, right? I mean, it's <laughs> um, they they do this very well with the screens, with the digital dials, with the map, you know the real time map information. Um, it's a it's a spaceship cockpit, pretty <laughs> it, much. It is, but in a in like an understated way. So they have 
obviously yeah. tech is their thing. I think their motto is Vorsprung durch Technik, which whoa, in, whoa, whoa, whoa. Germany, in German it means advancement through technology. That's what they've always done. Um, uh, the... You know, everything in the car is luxurious and it's and it's and it's almost perfect in a refined kind of way, not in a flamboyant, like in your face kind of way. You're not drowning in leather. There's not a 55 inch <laughs> screen, um, but there's exactly yeah. as much as you need, which I think is really cool. But I don't think they've cracked the whole battery tech thing because the range just isn't as impressive as other electric SUVs. And you don't get. Kyle, the kind of, you know, punch you in the gut acceleration that you do in other electric vehicles. Yeah. You're, you're talking about the Q8 you were just in? The Q8 e-tron, which is their new yeah. version of the yeah. e-tron. Now they're calling it the Q8 e-tron, even though it's not nearly as big um, or as, you know, um, special looking as the gas powered Q8. But yeah, they just, they don't seem to have the, uh, the get up and go that other EVs have, or, why is you know, that? 300, thought, 400 mile range. Why is that? I thought it isn't an E, you don't talk about horsepower anymore, do you? Or uh, you do, stuff? you can talk about horsepower equivalent and this one has 400 horsepower equivalent. Don't get me wrong. It's not slow, right? <laughs> Zero to 60 yeah. in like six seconds, which for a gas right. car is fast. Right. But for an EV, I mean, Kyle, we're looking at, you know, the Kia GT uh, EV6 or whatever it's called, does zero to 60 in five seconds. Like, you know, right. these EVs are beating Porsches off the line. Yeah. Well, part of the part of the equation you're seeing here is that Q8 and a lot of the Audis are big cars. For one, they're heavy. EVs are heavy. And the content they put in there is <laughs> heavy. So, you know, you have seats that massage you you have all the heaters you have all the electronics you have all the you know the luxury trappings and trimmings and that you know weighs on a zero to 60 time but it is notable that you know all the mercedes electric suvs are super heavy too and those things are quick the bmw ix which is their new like a bat out of hell <laughs> yeah that's pretty quick Hey, so Kyle, to choose your own picture, um, you know, the Cadillac Lyric is another one in this class that's honestly really nice um, and, and kind of understated like these Audis. Uh, they, they, you know, are subtle with their choices. It's not all screens. It's not all, you know, theater and drama and right. flashing so, lights. You know? But Kyle, what are, what are the EV manufacturers, what are they really marketing here? Or what, are, what are consumers finding important? Is it range? Is it the zero to 60 that Matt focuses on? Is it screens what are they really marketing on so they're really um it, it's funny it used to be range it's it, then it went to sort of charging time like high-speed charging you know you won't have to wait more than 10 minutes and now it's sort of drifting into this like no compromise zone like you can have the giant suv you want with all the trappings and trimmings and it will go far enough and it will charge fast enough and you just just kind of don't worry about it you know um, Mercedes, like all the Mercedes electrics, except like the really entry level ones have, you know, very impressive range figures. A lot of them are over 300 miles and they're, they're frank about it. They, they say the, you know, if you buy a Mercedes, you don't want to have to worry about range. Um, and then, and then there's a, there's another slice of the market that is really going after the performance. Like Matt mentioned that, that new Kia GT. Audi has a couple electric GTs that are that are just kind of bonkers. The Porsche, of course, um, and and they're thrilling to drive. 
Yeah. You know what? The, the funny thing is, and this is the only time I think I've ever said anything like this in my life. Oh, here we go. Even though it's not the fastest, even though it doesn't have the most range, this might be the one that I would buy if I were looking for a BEV SUV yeah. because um, the the road handling is so nice. Uh, you know, the air suspension is so luxurious yeah. because it has everything you need, but not a thing more. And because I've grown up with Audi kind of in my blood, um, I really like it. It starts at 75 grand, which is expensive, but it's not as expensive as, you know, a Mercedes or the BMW iX, which is r ridiculously expensive, yep. but it is more than the Lyric and certainly more than the Kia. That BMW starts at 87. The Lyric, I think, What's is the one Lyric? of the The Cadillac Lyric. Oh, okay. I got you. Okay. Yeah. The Lyric, um, that thing starts at basically 59,000. And it's a lot of car for that money. I mean, fifty-nine thousand, you can get an electric Kia. Um, it's really true. Like, a Nissan Ariya costs about that much yeah, when you have the good one. Exactly. I mean, Cadillac's not making a lot of them. It costs extra to get all-wheel drive and like you know the Super Cruise stuff. But that car, there's a lot of value there at that price point. So Matt, what do you? Why don't you get the? What's Mrs. Miller driving? She's not driving. She an EV? drives a Volvo XC90 T8, and she's—it's a hybrid. It's, it's not a, hybrid. a fully okay, electric. Okay, so kind of there. And she's so in love with it. She says, "You can pry this <laughs> truck away uh, right. from my cold, dead hands." But, okay, so we're not going um, there. But you know, I think it's fine. I would go hybrid as well um, right now because I'm just—I don't think the infrastructure is quite there yet, Kyle, for a fully, for a full EV. And there's such great choices. The Volvo's a nice one, especially for uh, my wife. I like the BMW X5 uh, hybrid because it actually has the inline six, the in incredibly refined, well, well, you know, BMW engine. Inline six, that's an internal combustion engine. Yeah, but it, inline six and a 25 kilowatt battery. Oh, so it's got hybrid. both. Oh, yeah, right, 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 um, right. But what do you that's think, Kyle, X about fully right? EV versus hybrid? I'm all in, man. I, I think it's there. I think the charging is getting there. You'll see, we're doing a big piece. You'll see it in the next week or two about how much infrastructure went in in the past year. Nice. And then Biden, $5 billion is going into charging in the next 12 months from the Biden administration, not 12 months, the next probably, you know, 24 months, but those stations will start popping up. I live out here in Colorado. So cold weather's a deal. Elevation's a deal. Wind's a deal. Um, but I've never, I haven't had a problem, um, and I, I think it's getting there. Oh, but I'll, I'll tell you, the Goldilocks rig that I really like, Matt, I yeah. just had the Mercedes GLE 450E, which is a hybrid and a serious hybrid. So this thing, like standard, great Mercedes SUV, goes 50 miles on a charge, which to me is kind of a magic number because, like, yes, you're hardly ever burning gas if you have that kind of range, and you have the gas if you if you need it if you're going farther. Um, I love this car. I don't know if you've been in it yet. I haven't tried it out. Um, I definitely would would like to, um, but for now, I've got to give this Q8 e-tron back. <laughs> and it's a little bit of a bummer because you get in the flashy special cars, and they're kind of yep. fun and interesting to drive. But they're also a lot of work. And this Audi, to me, like 
the perfect car for commuting. It's executive. It's German. And uh, <laughs> everything you like. All right, Kyle, thanks so much for joining us. And we'll get back to you on this some more car stuff. Kyle Stock, senior correspondent, Bloomberg Businessweek. What is Matt Miller driving? We're going to do this more often because it's always fun to talk cars and we'll get some smart car people on here. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.